listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a conversation with Tom Turiano, the author of several regional backcountry ski guidebooks, as he works on a new edition of one of them. I think getting people out there, enjoying nature, enjoying the wilderness is really the only way we can protect these places from the things that would destroy them. Plus, the nonprofit Slow Food in the Tetons is connecting local consumers to farmers like Curtis Hatterley of Hatterley Farms in Thane. Farming is not an extremely lucrative business, so it has to be something that's inside of you, something that's coming from the heart. You have to really want to do it. I call it passion. But first, a proposed bill that would ban the practice of crossover voting, the act of switching your political party on election day, has advanced through multiple checkpoints in the Wyoming state legislature. K2L's Will Walkie reports on what the passage of the bill would mean for cowboy state voters. Primary elections have an outsized impact on Wyoming politics. According to Gail Simmons of the nonprofit organization Civics 307, 63% of the state's legislative seats were determined during the party race. Not because the general elections weren't close, but because nobody from the other side had even registered to run. And that's even more extreme at the local level. Simmons spoke at a Senate committee meeting Tuesday. Over 90% of county and local partisan races are determined in the primary. So if you don't vote in the primary, and particularly you don't vote in whatever the majority party in your county is, it's already decided before you get to the general. Simmons says a lot of Wyomingites know this, so they switch their party, often while registering at the ballot boxes on election day to cast a vote they know will make a difference. That's crossover voting, and it's been getting more controversial in the past several years. Senate File 97, an old friend, change in party affiliation. Been taking a stab at this since I've been elected in uh, 2016, so uh, it's been it's been a long road, but hopefully this is the year we finally get dragged this carcass across the finish line. Republican State uh, Senator Bo Biteman of Ranchester says he's been concerned, particularly about Democrats, switching to vote for a Republican they like more than the other candidates, then switching back after the results come in for a long time. According to some GOP members, that's put more moderate folks, even Governor Mark Gordon, in office, diluting the voices of true Republicans. And that's the exact practice I'm trying to stop with this legislation. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's the right thing to do. And I think it's time we change that. This year, crossover voting is especially in the spotlight due to the race to potentially unseat Representative Liz Cheney. Former President Donald Trump has even gotten involved, endorsing both Cheney's main challenger, Harriet Hegeman, and the bill to end crossover voting. And now, that measure is moving through the Senate with decent support, but not without some objection. We're concerned about people being able to vote, and uh, those reasons why we bring up those concerns. Mary Lankford is a county clerk who testified during debate. She says many folks in Wyoming, including the over 35,000 unaffiliated voters, prefer not to register for a party until they know who's on the ballot. But if this bill were to pass, the deadline to get your paperwork in would be May 11th, long before the candidates are set. We have a situation that will come up, and it's always in the primary, where someone comes in, they get started voting on their ballot, and they realize that, geez, they really wanted to vote for the sheriff and he's on the other side of the ballot. So those oopses happen, 
And we don't really know how we would deal with that in a situation like this because you're not allowed to change your party until after the day of the primary. So that person would not be allowed to vote either. She says most people in Wyoming aren't well-versed in party politics and don't vote as such, but they still deserve to have their voices heard. Simmons of Civics 307 agrees. I think people are saying, I really care. I look around what's happening. And while I am not a dyed-in-the-wool Republican Party person, we have a lot of people who believe in the principles of the party, even if they don't care for the party itself. Plus, she says what Republicans worry about, those pesky Democrats switching back and forth, actually rarely happens. In fact, 0.4% of the vote did that in 2018. Most who switch are doing so permanently, or moving here, or anything else other than something with malicious intent. We had more Republicans who did not show up for the primary than we had total registered Democrats. The problem is not switching over. The problem is participation. But Biteman and others say, tough luck. Primary elections are supposed to be for diehard party members. People that decide they're unaffiliated, that don't want to be part of a party, that's their choice. They make that choice. Uh, the rest of us choose to be part of a party. And we should have that choice. And our vote should not be canceled out by people that just want to game the system, like I said. But others say this bill just disenfranchises people trying to become more involved in politics. Republican Senator Kale Case of Lander gave one final plea on the Senate floor Wednesday against the bill. This legislative session has had a lot to do with keeping people out. Keeping people from being in sports or keeping people from voting in elections or keeping people from getting services from their government. I don't want to be the people that person that keeps people out. I want to win on ideas and bring people in. It's a bad bill. Still, the bill moved forward twice by voice vote in the Senate. It'll need to be read once more and pass the House and governor's desk before becoming law. But if it does, it'll come into effect this year, changing the rules before what is already the most expensive primary race in Wyoming's history. Will Walkie, KHOL News. Tom is a skier, explorer, and author of several major backcountry ski guidebooks and maps, including Teton Skiing, A History and Guide, and the Jackson Hole Backcountry Skiers Guide South. Turiano is currently working on a new edition of his more regional book, Selected Peaks of Greater Yellowstone. KHOL contributor Natalie Shachar spoke to him about that process and about the controversy that accompanies his life's work. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today on KHOL. Thanks for having me. You've written many popular backcountry skiing guidebooks. Why did you feel a revised edition of Select Peaks was necessary? Well, for one, it was my best-selling title. So I wanted to get it back out there because uh, it encompasses the Bozeman, Billings, Livingston market. So there's a lot more people uh, that, that buy books. <laughs> so I, I wanted to sell more books that, that way um, before coming back to the local market. 
I'd love to understand a little bit more about your process. How do you start when you're approaching the revised edition and what are the considerations you take into account? Well, for one, over the years that the book is out, I get feedback and some of that feedback is it's mostly, you know, errors that I made. And so I want to fix the errors. You know, a lot of people ask me, why don't you just reprint it? And I, I can't do that. I can't put something out there that's that I know has errors in it. And two, there are areas in the first edition that I could have gone down a deep rabbit hole <laughs> exploring and, and, and getting into. And on, on the first edition, I decided not to go down that those rabbit holes. But on the next edition, I'm going to go down. I'm going down the rabbit holes, but I'm I'm taking out other areas, so it, the book will be about the same size, hopefully. Though it'll have a lot more photos, and it'll be in full color. I know a question on many people's minds, and one that you address at the very outset of your book is whether a guidebook, however nobly intended, might harm this magnificent place. How do you respond to those questions? Um, well. I think about it every day for one, like, am I doing, you know, especially now that I have so many books out there and they've really started to sell and become popular and I'm, I'm out there a lot and I'm seeing places that I used to go to or that, I, that I've been to for years and they're, they're not, I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> and I, I, I feel bad about that. I feel um, in some ways, I've, you know, mainly for, I guess, for my own enjoyment. I like to have the places all to myself. So I feel you know, upset that I've shared these places. I feel bad for the, my many friends and mentors who uh, might feel the same way, like upset that I wrote these books and now their solitude is affected. But at the same time, I'm, I'm also really happy when I hear from people who say that I've changed their lives and given them, you know, a guidebook to, you know, adventures that they might not otherwise have had. So I think in the end, I think it's, it's a good thing. In fact, I think, I think getting people out there, enjoying nature, enjoying the wilderness is really the only way we can protect these places from the things that would destroy them. If nobody cared about them, there are uh, forces out there that would would just take all the all the magic out of them, and I don't want to see that happen. So, the more people we can get out there enjoying these places in a low impact way, the better. I I did notice as of the first edition, you had yourself climbed. You had said about eighty five of one hundred seven peaks. So, did you end up getting to those last thirty or so? <laughs> That's right. It's been. 19 years since the book came out in 2003, I now have uh, 105 under my belt. So I'm too, still too short uh, that I have not climbed. And I hope to get those before the book comes out so that I can say I've climbed them all. <laughs> what are those last two? They're both in the Wind Rivers. I haven't been up Lizard Head Peak or Mount Helen. Okay. And is there a reason why those last two kind of eluded you for so long? Uh, well, for well, Mount Helen obviously is is really remote and difficult and uh lizard head i've tried a few times but um just didn't didn't succeed <laughs> so i just got to go back in there and do it now that i know exactly where the route is i had to do a little bit of uh trial and error to find the the best route up lizard head 
Wow. So you've got a peek in there that you yourself haven't been able to kind of overcome yet. That's right. (laughs) Well, I'll leave this here and let skiers explore these peaks themselves by reading the revised edition. Again, the book is Select Peaks of Greater Yellowstone, a Mountaineering History and Guide by Tom Turiano. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You can also hear an extended version of that conversation on our website, coming soon, at 891khol.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next is a story from our ongoing reporting collaboration with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Network about the transition away from fossil fuels. The northern skies of the Navajo Nation are clearer after the closure of the coal-powered Navajo Generating Station. But the region also lost jobs and tax revenue. A proposed pumped storage hydropower plant that uses the generation station's transmission lines could help the area transition. Justin Hagenbottom of KZMU in Moab reports on the legacy of coal-fired power on the Navajo Nation and what comes next. Nicole Horseherder is from Black Mesa, on the Arizona side of the Navajo Nation, and she says a couple decades ago her community noticed that their springs and seeps were drying up. Well, we know that the mining company on Black Mesa was tapped into one of the deep aquifers, and that deep aquifer just so happened to be the only potable source of water for people on Black Mesa. That mine pumped the aquifer to slurry coal to the Mojave Generating Station. Horse herder founded Tone Jonane, which translates to Sacred Water Speaks in Dene. Their goal was to close the mine, running her community dry. But that wasn't the only coal-powered plant using water in the region. Just west, the same company ran the Kayenta coal mine, feeding the Navajo generating station. In order to protect the water and to ensure that it was going to be viable into the future, we had to put an end to the coal mining. The Mojave Generating Station closed in 2005 after officials found it violated the Clean Air Act. So did the mine in Black Mesa. In 2019, the Navajo Generating Station shuttered along with its Kayenta mine. Pressure from environmental groups helped, but the coal-fired plant was also just not as profitable. The next year, its stacks were demolished. That's from footage of the demolition. It brought spectators from around the region. Once the Navajo generating station shut down, then we were able to turn our efforts to transition issues. Most important to horse herders, what to do with the transmission lines left from the Navajo generating station. But we jumped on it right away because we knew that the window of opportunity is small. Those lines transported electricity from the plant to cities outside of the Navajo Nation, like Phoenix and Las Vegas. But Horse Herder wants the lines used differently. And putting renewable energy on those transmission lines rather than more coal or some other fossil fuel industry. 
Jim Day is the CEO of Daybreak, and he has an idea. The Navajo Energy Storage Station, it's a really big project. It's 2,210 megawatts installed capacity of 10-hour duration storage. In terms of power, that's bigger than most nuclear power plants. The $3.6 billion project is what's called pumped storage hydropower. It would store power by pumping water from Lake Powell to a proposed reservoir near Navajo Mountain in Utah. So it uses abundant solar power in the daytime, pump the water up at huge quantities, and then as the sun starts to go down and power demand goes up and solar starts falling off, it releases the water back through generating turbines. Those turbines can then release power when needed. Day says that storing energy is important when using renewable sources like solar or wind, which don't generate electricity uniformly. When the wind's blowing, we could suck it all up. When the sun's blazing hot, we could take a lot of that power off their hands and then deliver it when the, the grid needs it. It's still extremely early days for the project, but Day says it has the chance at providing thousands of jobs and millions in revenue. He says he has brought the idea to the Navajo Nation. I want them to be partners. That's the whole point of this project is to benefit them. Mike Eisenfeld of the San Juan Citizens Alliance advocates for a transition to renewable energy in the region. He's seen several pump storage projects proposed, but he has questions. Where's the power going? Who benefits? Is it going to be for the Navajo Nation? Is it going to provide power for local communities? Or is it going to be thing that is sort of set up? for California. It was common for those on the Navajo Nation to be in view of power plants like the Navajo Generating Station, but have no electricity in their own homes. Well, what about the projects that could stand on their own merits? Why are we keep investing in these speculative projects when we know that we could be building renewable energy projects that would have a meaningful impact on local communities? For horse herders, she hopes a transition from fossil fuels also changes how business is done. There has to be a change in the way that corporations and utilities do business anywhere in this nation, in any community. She thinks that whatever replaces coal should help those closest to it. And communities should hold some power in how they generate power. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. of the local nonprofit Slow Food in the Tetons is to grow the region's sustainable food economy by supporting producers, educating consumers, and connecting them together. One way the organization does that is through the People's Market, which is being held monthly this winter at Jackson's Center for the Arts. Next, K-12's Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin speaks to Slow Food Executive Director Scott Steen and Curtis Hatterley, owner of Hatterley Farms in Thane, ahead of the next People's Market on Sunday, March 6th. So the People's Market allows farmers, ranchers, and food producers to sell directly to consumers. Can you two explain how that relates to the local food system and why it's so important to have in the community? It's all about relationships and community food system, or in other words, a local and regional food system is really based on knowing who your farmers are and where your food comes from. And there's so much to that. You begin to have a different relationship with your food and also understand how it's grown 
and shake the hand of the person that puts in all the work to make that happen. And that relationship goes so much farther because if you have a question about the quality of your food, the growing practices of your food, you don't have to research what an organic label means. And those labels are important too, but you can just ask. And there's this, there's a level of trust there and we build upon that. As farmers, um, there's an endless list of things to do each day. And some of us are better marketers than others, but we're, we're fortunate that we live in an area where we have organizations like Slow Food and the Tetons that help us create a market or get access to the people that may have interest in our products, especially when you're starting out. So you've got some carrots and you want to sell them. It's a daunting task to figure out how to get access to the people that may have that interest. So having an organization that does a lot of the work, meaning the publicity, the organization of the event. And again, from a farmer's perspective, it's nice when we can focus on the growing of the product, not necessarily having to take all the time to figure out all the marketing. And so from that perspective, organizations like Slow Food fill a critical role to help us as farmers get off the ground and then to continue to be able to tell our story and have the events where we can actually sell product, make money and continue. So Curtis, Hatterley Farms is one of the more established farms in Wyoming, and you come from several generations of Star Valley farmers before you. How does your own family history in the area inform your farming philosophy? So my mom and dad were married in 1945, and they bought and moved to what is now Hatterley Farms that same year. And that's where I was born and raised, and that's where I learned the basic fundamentals of farming. My dad was not a sophisticated person, but he was a pretty good farmer. Although I'm doing things completely different than he did, he mainly worked with animals, milked cows and raised beef cattle and had some pigs and chickens and things like that, all on small scale. But it's the principles that I learned. When I say principles, we're talking about the principles of being able to get up in the morning, being responsible, making enough money to provide for your family, things that may not be specific to farming, but those kinds of things in retrospect are things, values that I adopted and I really didn't know that they would help me in my farming career. And frankly, I didn't start off wanting to be a farmer. Uh, most kids that grow up on farms, that's the last thing they want to do is be a farmer. They're, they can't wait to get, get out of there and do something a little less strenuous with better hours. I'm very happy that I was raised on a farm. I always say that all kids deserve to grow up on a farm because it's such a wonderful educational venue where there's just endless things to do, endless things to learn. My family is a treasure to me and I value how I was raised. I hope to promote that simply because we invite everybody to come to the farm, especially if you have children. I say, come to the farm because we're trying to get that next generation hooked on farming because I'm wearing out. We need that next generation to take over. So besides the obvious difficulties of the short growing season in Wyoming, what are some other barriers to farmers or individuals trying to start a food-based business here in Wyoming? Yeah, there are definite challenges. As you, probably everyone listening has heard, Teton County has blown off the charts as far as personal income. We're, we're the highest in the nation as far as a county. And with that, land prices follow right along with that. So if you are an aspiring farmer, to farm, you need land, right? And unless you have a very big checkbook, that's in a very significant barrier to get involved in farming is the price of land. Other than the uh, the price of land, uh, labor is a huge issue. I always say, if you want to work very hard for very little money, come apply. So farming is not a extremely lucrative 
business. So it has to be something that's inside of you, something that's coming from the heart. You have to really want to do it. I call it passion. You have to have a real desire to be connected to the land and the soil and the animals and the plants, whatever you're involved with. I'm fortunate right now to have a good group of people that have that passion that are willing to get up in the morning and milk a cow when it's 10 below or 20 below at five o'clock in the morning uh, in the dark. I mean, not a lot of applicants for that type of a job. And then in the summertime, when we're doing everything simultaneously, the hours are long. And even though we're in a cold climate, it gets hot here in the summertime when you're working out in the, the hot fields, either hauling hay or changing sprinklers or harvesting vegetables, whatever it may be. So it takes a special person with that inner drive and, and the understanding that the, the rewards aren't necessarily financial, but they're, and especially if you have children, which we do, we have a family uh, living on the farm and working now. And it gives me a lot of satisfaction watching that family work together, watching those kids be, being raised on a farm. And then finally, I'll just mention that regulation is an issue. As farmers, I feel that we are self-regulating. I cannot afford to create an inferior product or a product that would ever hurt or harm someone. And so I don't need oversight saying, okay, you need to, you need to do something different to produce a better product. Because again, if I was to produce an inferior or an unsafe product, I would be out of business very, very quickly because I'm small and word would travel very quickly. So I'm an advocate for less regulation and less oversight and let the consumers vote with their dollars if I'm doing a good job or not. Well, Scott Steen of Slow Foods of the Tetons and Curtis Hatterley of Hatterley Farms, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. And now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. Medicaid expansion was dealt another blow in the Wyoming legislature. It was brought to the Senate floor in the form of a budget amendment supported by Republican Kale Case of Lander. This expansion is pro-hospitals. It creates jobs. It supports those very people that we care about, the people that wait on your table to clean your hotel room. These are working people. It's estimated that 24,000 Cowboy State residents would gain coverage by expanding this federal program. But debate on the merits of the policy never actually reached the floor as it was deemed unconstitutional by a legislative rules committee due to it being brought to the floor as a budget amendment rather than a regular bill. So it's back to the drawing board for healthcare advocates. Jackson Mayor Haley Morton-Levinson gave her second annual State of the Town address last week. Speaking in a pre-recorded video, she said the town council has made progress on several of its main priorities over the past year, from working on expanding childcare options to housing solutions for local workers. But the mayor also says the town has seen exponential growth in demands for core services and that it will need more revenue soon in order to keep up. Today, the town treats and supplies more water, manages more storm drains and water mains, maintains more public restrooms, parking lots, sidewalks, and roads, and answers more calls for service for firefighters and police than ever before. 
The council debated asking voters to approve an additional penny of sales tax in this year's elections, but decided to hold off in favor of getting special taxes for specific capital projects approved. Grand Teton National Park will begin gunning down local mountain goats from helicopters starting Wednesday. The goal is to entirely remove the non-native goat population, estimated to be at around 30 animals, in an effort to protect the small and isolated bighorn sheep herd in the area. Michael Whitfield is a wildlife biologist who's studied bighorns in the Tetons for decades, and he says goats migrating in from Idaho are in effect an invasive species and are putting the sheep in danger. The sheep really don't have a, they're not very resilient population-wise, they don't have a reserve, whereas the goats pump some more in there. So we need to eliminate the goats both for potential competition as well as particularly the disease transmission. The aerial culling operations are safer and more effective than ground hunts, according to the park. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Just a reminder that if you enjoy Jackson Unpacked, you can help us spread the word about the show by leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Unpacked.